The Central Review Group is the Office of Fraud Detection and Market Intelligence's nerve center. It triages tens of thousands of matters every year, ranging from investor complaints, external and internal tips, to disclosure events, routine regulatory filings, and more, to spot the red flags of fraud and other concerns. On this episode of FINRA Unscripted, Tony Cavallaro joins us to tell us more. Welcome to FINRA Unscripted from New York. I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Tony Cavallaro, Senior Vice President of the Central Review Group within FINRA's Office of Fraud Detection and Market Intelligence. Tony, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Caitlin. The Central Review Group is one of four groups within OFDMI, as you may remember from episode 23, when we sat down with Sam Drotty, head of the Insider Trading Surveillance Group. Tony, I've heard that your group, the Central Review Group, is sometimes referred to as FINRA's point guard. Do you think that characterization is fair? I think it's a perfect characterization since we're responsible for reviewing pretty much all the incoming matters into FINRA and then working with a bunch of people determining the right place for those within FINRA. It's a perfect name for the Central Review Group. So can you give us some background? Why was your group created and what it aims to do? Sure. So... As you said, the Central Review Group is part of the Office of Fraud Detection and Market Intelligence. And OFDMI was implemented as part of a special review that was conducted in 2009. And that review was conducted after the Stanford and Madoff situations. And one of the recommendations that came out of that review was to establish a central point of contact for fraud-related matters and to set up the Office of Fraud Detection and Market Intelligence, which then included the Central Review Group. It also established the Office of the Whistleblower and brought in insider trading and also the fraud surveillance functions. So OFDMI and CRG as part of that provides a key point for FINRA for all this incoming matters. And one of the things that this special committee asked us to do was to be the point and try to determine when matters come in, whether there's fraud-related situations there or high-risk situations there. And then when these matters come in, we assess them if there's something significant at a high level, collaborate within FINRA to determine who's best to handle these matters as they come in, try to get them as quickly as we can. And then if it's not a FINRA issue, we also try to make sure it gets to the right either law enforcement agency or regulatory agency pretty much anywhere in the country, and we have significant contacts out there to get this stuff out there quickly and with significant detail. So you're triaging a lot of information? So the Central Review Group, their main function all day long is to triage matters as they come into FINRA, and those matters can consist of many different things. We have regulatory filings made by firms. We have regulatory tips that get submitted. We also get investor complaints that come in. We also look at arbitration filings, statements of claims. We look at cross-claims and counter-claims. And we also assess employee regulatory tips. So anybody in the organization that receives some regulatory information or whatever, any type of tip or something significant, they submit what's called an employee tip, and then that comes into the Central Review Group and it's reviewed. That sounds like a lot of different types of information. So I was wondering how your team is structured. Do you have people that specialize in different matters, or how does that work? The Central Review Group is split into two areas. We have the front-end unit, 
which does most of the triage that we're talking about. And we also have the preliminary investigations unit. And that unit conducts preliminary reviews on certain types of matters, typically a Form U-5, so somebody got terminated, or a U-5 amendment that the firm made an amendment to something, then there's a regulatory issue, or 4530 filings. And they typically look at those filings made by firms that have 150 registered reps or more. And the Century Review Unit, the front-end unit, the, the triage function, as far as specialization goes, we try to break it out by having certain people handle arbitration matters and certain people handling customer complaints because there's a little bit of a specialty area there. We also have individuals who handle U5 filings and 4530 filings, and we try to break those down by firms so the analyst is able to see if there's a particular pattern or trend with a particular firm. And we also have a lot of contacts at the firm. So as the filings come in, they may not be as descriptive as we like. And so there's many phone calls that have to go back and forth between the analyst and the firm contact. But that all being said, sometimes if we get an increase in, let's say, arbitration filings, it doesn't mean that somebody can't help out who's normally doing Form U5 filings or someone who does regulatory tips. Everybody steps in to help another area out because everybody can do those same types of reviews. So you mentioned the preliminary investigations group. Sounds like they would have to work closely with FINRA's enforcement team on some matters. So how does your team work with other parts of FINRA? We're collaborating all the time. And a good example is, let's say a regulatory filing comes in, whether it's a tip or a firm makes a filing, a U5, they fire somebody. And so when that's initially assessed, there could be a fraud component to it. So let's say it says misappropriation, and we find out from the firm that a registered rep stole $500,000. Within OFDMI, we would talk about that, and then we would escalate that internally. And typically, those matters would then be handled either by the whistleblower unit or preliminary investigations unit. And sometimes it could also be handled by the district offices, depending on the nature of what comes in. With respect to the relationship between the preliminary investigations unit and enforcement, there is constant dialogue back and forth. We have high-risk situations. We're conferring with them at times before we send an 8210 request out. And then once a week, we have a meeting with enforcement, and also the district staff is involved, and we make determinations there on whether we should issue cautionary action letters to people after our investigations are done or whether to bring an action for somebody for failing to cooperate. And we also confer with enforcement before we refer anything to enforcement for further review. You also mentioned that you have significant contacts outside of FINRA for when you're referring matters elsewhere. How does that generally work? Well, we have pretty extensive Rolodexes. So if we come across a situation and somebody doesn't realize FINRA's jurisdictional capabilities, we'll make that assessment. And typically, if there's a complaint or a regulatory tip, our office of the whistleblower may get involved and send a formal referral to a different agency. There could also be situations where we don't need to make a referral or we want some additional information. Sometimes we'll find out that the FBI is involved in something or the U.S. Attorney's Office, and we'll make a phone call. About eight to ten times a year, I work with FINRA's investor education area, and we work with the National White Collar Crime Center, and we conduct training for law enforcement and regulators in different areas and different parts of the country, and we tell them 
all about FINRA and we tell them what we do to assess risk and what we do to look for red flags. And from all of those meetings that I've had over the last three or four years, I have an extensive contact database. And I'll give you a good example of how that works. There was an article in the news about an individual who had been arrested for stealing about $500,000 from a couple of customers. And one of the first things we do proactively is we'll look through those news clips and see, has that person ever hit Finner's radar before? And so we do that for a number of reasons. One is we want to make sure if somebody did get arrested, that information is out there on the CRD database. Somebody can find that in broker check. And this particular individual, when I looked at his regulatory history, he had actually voluntarily left his last firm and there were no issues. It was a voluntary termination. So anybody checking broker check would not find this charge on there. And so using our databases of contact information within one phone call, I had the securities regulator from that particular state. I got the details on the information, found out the firms involved, and it turned out that the information actually went back to 2011, which was not in the article. I reached out to the two chief compliance offices from the two firms where this individual worked. They actually were very happy to hear from me because they had actually seen the same article and they were scratching their heads trying to figure out what was going on. They appreciated the contact information that I provided them. And within 24 hours, they were in touch with the securities and insurance regulator from the state. And the last I heard from the investigator was that they might actually have some more customers that they found closer in time to 2018, 2019, where some additional funds may have been stolen. That's a great example of your team not just taking tips that are coming into you passively, but also acting proactively to help uncover the potential harm to customers. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing we did, too, is we reached out to the RAD team area to let them know of the arrest situation. Now, because it was an arrest and they didn't have the right documents, they couldn't get anything on broker check right away. But they're actually following up with the court jurisdiction and getting the right documents so they can put the appropriate information on CRD so it's available in broker check. Because it's not unusual for individuals. Sometimes they get arrested and they get out on bail. And next thing you know, they're at it again and nobody knows about it. And if anybody in the public checked broker check, they would see that this person had a clean bill of health without us adding that information there. So you also mentioned that the compliance professionals at the firms that you contacted were actually happy to hear from you. So how do your relationships with firms work? Are they always happy to hear from you? I wouldn't say they're unhappy to hear from us. I mean, typically they're making the filing, so they expect phone calls. We actually correspond with firms in many different ways. The front end unit looks at about 25,000 matters a year. About 8,000 of those are U5 filings. And because of the nature of the U5 filing, it's not that firms are making filings that are improper or against the rules, but they don't have the information we need to make the right risk assessment. So we're constantly calling these contacts on the U5s when they submit them. So we just say, hey, what is this about? Do you have any more information? And that's where they provide the details. So that's going on pretty much every day by all of our analysts in the front end unit. They're making those phone calls to find out what the situations and what's going on. We also have situations where if we get a tip in or a complaint or something significant and we need to reach out to somebody at a firm level, we'll call a chief compliance officer or the regulatory contact and try to get some additional information at a high level because we need something pretty quickly. And so we have those regular dialogues with these firms back and forth. The other thing that we also do proactively is, as I said, we do make a number of phone calls to firms that we try to pick out if a firm makes routine filings all the time 
and says violated firm policies and procedures not securities related. It's not that there's anything improper with that filing, but we have to call and find out what it is. And so our staff over the last couple of years has been trying to put together where there's things that are repetitive. So for example, if every time we call a firm that has that particular language in there, we find out it's attendance related, we work with Rad to reach out to the firm and say, hey, you know, it might make more sense here if it's possible to add attendance or production or something that's not a regulatory issue. So our staff knows right away that there's no follow-up phone call that's required. The other thing, too, is back in 2011, we issued regulatory notice 1106. And what 1106 says is if you make a Form U5 or U5 amendment filing, you don't also have to file a 4530 filing. So we don't want those duplicate filings. It's not good for FINRA, and it creates additional work for the firms. We still find today, even though it's 2019, that firms at times are making duplicate filings. As a matter of fact, one came in today, a 4530 filing on an individual they already submitted a U5 filing on within the last couple of days. So we proactively reach out to those firms, talk to the people who are making the filing. Sometimes it's the CCO and direct them to regulatory notice 1106. And when we make those phone calls, they're very happy to hear from us because they don't have to do that extra work. But those are the kinds of things we're doing when we're reviewing and assessing, not only from a regulatory perspective, but also from a perspective of trying to help the firms make better filings and reduce the work on their end and our end also. Makes sense. So how do you differentiate some major filings from more routine ones? And how do you decide how quickly to escalate a matter? That's always the tricky part because not all of the filings come in the same way. And so we've had extensive training with our staff, lessons learned. As I said previously, unfortunately, the filings are not always as specific as we would like them to be. Again, not that there's anything wrong with the filings, but firms, for a number of issues, they put certain things down. Or there's also times where firms don't realize that there's another issue going on here, so that, so that the filing may not come out as what's really going on. And a good example is a case that we had last year where a regulatory Form U5 came in from a firm which said that an individual was terminated because with the customer's permission, they moved funds from one account to another account and purchased a bond in order for the rep to meet a sales goal. So on its face, there's a regulatory issue, but not a significant one. As the preliminary investigations unit was reviewing that regulatory filing, a couple of weeks after it came in, we found out from the firm that the FBI was involved and it turned out it was a $2 million fraud case. So at that time, when we find out about that, we elevate that internally and we would make a determination internally, what's the next step here? And that could actually even happen on the U5 itself. So let's say the U5 comes in and we know right away there's a misappropriation of fraud. We elevate that internally, have those internal discussions and then collaboration within FINRA. So we'll get enforcement involved. And if there's a district issue or let's say the district may be at the firm or there's something going on that the district's aware of, we will get the district staff involved at a very high level collaboration and then make the next step determinations on what to do. So if a matter is one that your team deems needs to be handled quickly, how quickly can you address something? Well, we've had situations where we have gotten individuals barred in four days. So fully barred and out of the securities industry in four days. We've had situations where there have been eight days. 
And those typically handled by the whistleblower office where a filing comes in, we realize it's significant, we elevate it internally, and then the person who's handling the investigation reaches out and the person says, you know, I'll sign whatever you want. And then the person is then barred from the industry. One of the other tools we have is the Rule 8210 request. These go out in all situations. We always send a routine letter out, but we could send that 8210 request out and we get a call from a lawyer or we get a call from a registered rep that says, I would like to dispose of this case and what do I need to do? And then they sign the AWC document and the person is barred from the industry. So it could be four days, it could be eight days, it could be 90 days, but we try to get that pretty quickly. That does sound pretty quick. So now I was hoping you could walk us through an example. When you first receive the filing, what happens next? So actually the regulatory filings, so that's the U5s, the 4530s, even the regulatory tips, we have an internal database called triage system. And so the 4530s and the U5 filings, when they're made, they hit our system the next day. In the morning, some of our managers, and I actually do it on a regular basis, I'll look at the filings that come in and I'll try to assess based on the filing language if there's a significant issue that's going on. Let's say, for example, a firm writes, we terminated this person because they stole money. That's something we get that at pretty seems quickly. pretty obvious. Yesterday, a filing came in that I saw that said a registered representative deposited a $60,000 check from a customer into the registered representative's personal bank account. That's one that we flag right away. So we don't wait for the analyst because the analyst in their queue, they could have 100 or 200 matters waiting. And so they're trained to actually go in and pick out the significant ones. But that one, since we saw it come in, that filing came in and that day we had to call out to the firm to find out what is this filing about? Because it does sound like there's something serious there, but it's not really clear what's going on, right? Was there an outside investment that the customer agreed to and the rep deposited? Or did the customer want to make a deposit with the firm or an investment with the firm? And then the registered rep deposited that money to his own personal bank account. So that's what we're trying to find out. So we look at what the language says on the U5 filing or the 4530. We look at what the regulatory tip says or the investor complaint or the arbitration matter or the employee tip. The staff then makes that assessment. If they make a phone call or on its face, the filing has something that's pretty significant, that gets elevated internally within OFDMI and then we make determinations as to what we're gonna do next. We collaborate with other departments and FINRA if that's necessary. If it doesn't make it to the point where it gets elevated, what the staff does is they'll look internally in FINRA's databases. So for example, let's say a complaint comes in, but there's a district office that's already reviewing this particular registered representative. The matter will be set up in our internal systems and then assigned out to that particular district. So you don't have a duplication of efforts. The staff may also assess and find out that a firm's reporting a investor complaint, but the rep was already barred two years ago. So they'll just make a note in the system and that matter would be closed. There's nothing else to do. The person's already barred. There's no supervisory issue. They can also make an assessment that FINRA lacks jurisdiction. Let's say there's a regulatory tip that comes in or an investor complaint, and it really should go to the SEC or it should go to a state regulator or it should go to a state insurance authority. The staff will make that assessment, and then the staff will make sure that that information then gets out to the appropriate regulatory authority if FINRA lacks jurisdiction. Now, everything that we do, Every matter that we touch, every matter that comes in, all that stuff is saved in our databases. So anybody within FINRA can look that information up. So districts for the purposes of doing risk assessments for particular reps, branches, or firms, 
all that information is saved in the database. The other thing that happens sometimes, too, is people may complain about the same thing. And so if you've already reviewed it and determined there's no issues here, there's no reason to send it on to anybody else to review the same thing. It's not unusual for people maybe to complain three or four times. So the staff does a really good job of picking out things that have already been reviewed or something that somebody's currently open on somewhere in, in the district. The other thing that the analysts will do is they'll also check internet databases. So they might do a Google search on somebody. If there's something in the filing that says, hey, maybe there's something out there on this. If the firm reports that somebody got arrested for something, we might see if it hit the news. And they'll check all those databases, see if there's some other information out there that may be appropriate. What are some of the possible outcomes from a review outside barring an individual or referring a matter on? Do you ever do anything else? There's a number of things that could happen. So, for example, case could be closed. So let's say there's a complaint that's reviewed and we determine there's no regulatory issues here and the matter gets closed. We can issue a cautionary action letter, and that's done in conjunction with our review with enforcement and also the district staff to make sure that we're consistent throughout FINRA on when we send cautionary action letters out for particular types of conduct. We could also refer a matter to the district office, or we could refer a matter to enforcement. We could also refer matters to market regulation. Many times we'll get regulatory tips or we'll get investor complaints that really deal with a market integrity issue, so we'll assign those to the market regulation. With respect to investor alerts, regulatory notices, information notices, we do try to look for patterns and trends or something that may be new that firms may need to be aware of. And for example, Recently, an article appeared in the news where our whistleblower office had actually seen something that came in, and they worked with Office of General Counsel, and they worked with Investor Education, and they put out a information notice related to fraudulent phishing emails that were targeting firms. And so that is kind of a real-time situation that happened there. Last year, we had put out a information notice warning firms of imposters who were calling firms looking for information from the firms, and they were pretending that they were from FINRA, and they were using phone numbers that were overseas, and they were using emails that didn't have FINRA involved in them. So we put an information notice out immediately to the firm so they were aware of this particular attempt of people. And the interesting thing about that is a couple of days after we sent that information notice out, a woman had called me because my name was on there as the point of contact. And she had received a fake check purportedly from FINRA. And so it was a scam where somebody had sent this check and they wanted her to deposit it and then give her, let's say the check was for $1,000. They were going to give her $800 back and she was going to keep two. And then what happens is the check bounces and she's out the $800 that she turned over to them. So she had called me and said, I just received this check and I figured I'd check with you and to see if this really came from FINRA. And of course it didn't. She did not lose any money. She was happy that she read the information notice. And then we worked with Investor Education to actually update a notice they had on their website about fake FINRA checks based on this new information and new documentation. So we're constantly, as things come in, trying to collaborate with district offices, enforcement, or wherever in FINRA where something may touch. That's great. One of the ways you coordinate with others outside FINRA is through the Complaint Initiatives Committee. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so this committee's been in effect for a long time. I don't even know when it started because it preceded me. And the Complaint Initiative Committee is actually an ad hoc committee at FINRA. 
and there's information on our website about that, as well as the many different committees, the ad hoc committees and the regular committees that people could actually ask to be involved in. The Complaint and Issues Committee is a group that we meet quarterly, and we have representatives from 23 firms, and we try to mix it up every year, but we do have people who've been on there for a long time. The 23 firms represent a significant amount of filings that come in on U5s and 4530s, not only the 4530A, but also the 4530 statistical filings that come in. And so we work with this committee if we're contemplating a 4530 rule change, if we're contemplating a regulatory notice, we're contemplating Q&A updates on what firms need to file and how they need to file them. Sometimes we'll talk about different code changes. So let's say there's a new product out there that we need to add a code on or a new type of situation that firms are seeing. We work with them on our quarterly meetings to say, do we need to add any more codes? Do we need to revise any codes? Do we need to put Q&As out there? And the great thing about this committee is everybody is so engaged. And I'll tell you the number of changes and things that we've done over the last 10 years with the input of this committee. We've had rule changes. We've had, in lieu of changes, so we implemented change where if firms make certain U4 filings, they don't have to make 4530 filings. And so we reduced a lot of duplication that we used to have to deal with, not only at FINRA, but also at the firm level. And the other thing, too, that's significant is the technology changes. And so we think from the FINRA end, we're going to change a piece of technology, but there's a downstream effect on the firms on the other end. And so they may have budget issues. They may have their own technology issues. So we get them involved before we make any of these changes. And over the last at least 10 years since I've been involved and we make any type of changes like this, there's never an issue for the industry because this group has already vetted everything. And they're pretty vocal if there's going to be something that affects them. And we take all that into consideration before we do any of that stuff. So it's a great group. They're great advisors to us, and it's great for FINRA to work with the industry to make sure that if we make any changes, there's no issues later on that we might not have been aware of. Sounds like a great resource. Well, thanks, Tony, for joining us today to shed light on how your group is able to review and handle so many different matters. That's all for today's episode. From New York, I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. If you have any questions for future guests or ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at finraunscripted at finra.org. Until next time. note FINRA podcasts are the sole property of FINRA and the information provided is for informational and educational purposes only. The content of the podcast does not constitute any FINRA rule or amendment or interpretation of such rules. Compliance with any recommended conduct presented does not mean that a firm or person has complied with the full extent of their obligations under FINRA rules, the rules of any other SRO or securities laws. This podcast is provided as is. FINRA and its affiliates are not responsible for any human or mechanical errors or omissions. Parties may not reproduce these podcasts in any form or reference them in any publication without the express written consent of FINRA.